0: Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, we'll be continuing my conversation with Dr. Jill Scheibler about the 2020 Democratic and Republican National Conventions. If you missed the first part, go ahead and listen to the previous episode before getting into this one today's episode covers the use of the White House as a setting for the Republican National Convention and therefore potential Hatch Act violations, the involvement of the Biden and Trump families in the conventions, the tone of the conventions, and how you could see, reflected in the conventions, the existential threats of concern to varying elements of the political spectrum. Jill Scheibler is a community psychologist, a college professor and research coordinator, an art therapist, and the co founder and operations and program director of the nonprofit Make Studio, which empowers artists with disabilities to grow as professionals with visibility and voice in their communities. Although not formally a student of political science, curiosity and an early interest in presidential history has led Jill to pay an increasing amount of attention to news and politics since her college years. She is interested in how governments can be made to work the best for the most, and has an affinity for underdogs. Politics-watching is probably Jill's main hobby, for better or worse. She is an avid daily reader of news, from local to international. She admits to enjoying the political horse race, but not at the expense of substance and she knows all 50 states' U.S. senators by name, if not sight. Today, Jill identifies as a left-of-center, pragmatic, progressive Democrat. Like Jill, politics watching is my main hobby. I do have a professional background in the field, but for the past decade, mothering and homemaking have been my primary employment. So I really enjoyed this conversation. It was fun for Jill and me to get to indulge in our shared hobby with some amateur punditry. I sometimes think of myself as the kitchen sink pundit, because political observations run especially easily through my head while my hands are sunk deep in a sink of dirty dishes. All right. With all that said, let's continue with the conclusion of our conversation on the Democratic and Republican National Conventions. And be sure to stick around to the end. After Jill and I conclude our assessment, I'm going to give you some of my more personal thoughts on the Conventions and the presidential race in general. This conversation was recorded on August 28th, the afternoon after the conclusion of the Republican National Convention.
1: For you as someone who, um, you know, has identified as a Republican and thinking about, you know, the potential directions, was there any evidence here in this convention um, for you that, you know, well, what would be the more, um, you know, Immediate next steps in terms of the way that um, different uh, themes were featured or the way different speakers were prioritized?
0: Right. Well, I thought, I thought it was very clear. I, I thought the answer is definitely the future is Trump. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. n- no, no question. But then again, I mean, conventions are always, mm-hmm. in, in the most modern times, they are always also a function yeah, of, of the, the campaign. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the Democratic convention was not just a meeting of Democrats, it was also a Biden campaign event. Mm-hmm. And just like this, was not, it was not just a meeting of Republicans, it was also a Trump campaign event. So it makes sense that it was all about Trump. But I definitely thought that um, even though, like I said, you could kind of see some little glimmers like with Tim Scott mm-hmm. about what else might be possible in the future, I thought it was very clear that the Republican Party sees Trumpism as its future.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I think when I... um. And and coming at it from a different perspective, I think for me a clue of that was the lack of adopting a new platform um, for yes, this year. Absolutely,
0: and I, I was very if,
1: surprised about that. Yeah. I I I
0: I almost couldn't believe it when I heard that the Republican Party wasn't putting on a platform. I just thought, well, that's one of the two things you do at the convention: <laughs> you put out a plat- platform and you nominate a president. So I was I was stunned. I have to admit. I I shouldn't have been stunned thinking about it. I guess it makes sense um, in how much the party has come to revolve around one person, but, um, but I was surprised.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think between that um, and we maybe talked about this a little bit with talking about the use of the different um, backdrops, you know, of the federal properties um, sort of, you know, pushing, pushing the norm envelope, but I think it was sort of the combination of that with the lack of a platform that to me, because I am, you know, sort of invested in the, um, the usual procedural pieces, um, that, that to me together kind of felt a little bit like it overshadowed, um, the content, um, Mm -hmm. whether I agreed with the content or not. But I think that's very different than for a lot of, a lot of folks who are just, you know, more casually watching. So it was kind of a strange sort of of out-of-body experience. It was like, this piece of it really bothers me. And I, but I, in terms of thinking about what will that actually do with voter behavior, like I have to like detach myself from that because um, a lot of people just don't care about that as much as others of us do.
0: Um, No, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I think that for anyone who's been paying attention to politics for a long time, especially if they have at any point in their lives worked for the federal government Um, that it was jarring to see the White House used in that way. So like I, I worked for the federal government when I got out of college and um, for those who don't know the Hatch Act is meant to prevent employees of the federal government from using the government to advance Mm -hmm. any political aims And in a democracy, we should want that. (laughs) (laughs) We should not want employees of the federal government to use government resources to advance their own political aims. I mean, no matter what part of the political spectrum you come from, you should Mm -hmm. want that. And um, as I understand it, the Hatch Act does not apply to President Trump himself Mm -hmm. or to Vice President Pence. But it applies to everyone else. So especially, I think, with Ivanka Trump speaking from the White House, she's an employee of the federal government. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but to me, that looks like a blatant Hatch Act violation. And it even extends to everyone who set up chairs, who did, who did anything for the right. event. I mean, right. you're not even supposed to use your federal government telephone to make campaign calls. I think I an mean, example
1: that was used over, um, a few times to, for comparison for just thinking about how the window has shifted was that I think when Al Gore was vice president, he himself was not subject to the Hatch Act, was making some fundraising calls from within a White House office um, during the reelection campaign for, um, for Bill Clinton and that was a big you know a big scandal at the right. time relatively speaking so
0: right i mean it's i mean i th- i think even i'm not sure but i think even like with senators and congressmen if they want to make campaign calls they're supposed to physically leave the capitol and That's go to like yeah. They go to another office a street away or whatever and make the phone calls from there. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. these days with cell phones, it can And they're be mostly supposed things.
1: to do them even right. outside of business hours. In my understanding right. is there's, right. I, I think I was on one podcast, I was listening to former Obama staffers talking about how, you know, they would have to huddle late into the night. Um, yeah. Outside of the White House in order to work on campaign business.
0: Right. So I yeah. think that's probably something that the average viewer just misses. Yeah. It's probably something that only would be meaningful to you if you pay attention, but that doesn't mean the average person shouldn't be concerned about it. I mean, yeah. I just think <laughs> we don't want to we don't want to get into the pattern where it's just totally acceptable for our elected officials to use government resources to campaign. I mean, that's just I don't see how that's anywhere we want our democracy. <laughs>
1: to be yeah, because I think that's, I mean, that's just where there's a sort of a very overt sort of advantaging and a lever of power that's being tipped towards a particular candidate. And you can just kind of imagine um, just spinning out from that um, the different levels of advantage that would put one, you know, one individual or one party into. Um, right.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm really curious to see what's going to come of all of this Hatch Act talk because on the one hand, I can see how trying to pursue um, – I think if they were to pursue a case against anybody who potentially violated the Hatch Act, I think it would cause a big uproar from the right because I think yeah. it would be like, oh, you're splitting hairs or how important yeah. is this really? And it would probably emphasize – um trump's reputation as somebody who's just gonna get it done do whatever he wants yeah. to do to get it done so i don't know how politically advantageous it is on the, the track record
1: has been yeah that it usually yeah. advantages him yeah yeah right on
0: the other hand i think it's really dangerous for us to set a precedent that it. this just doesn't matter
1: yeah it kind of it has echoes in a you know to a very different scale and not to get into the details of that of of things but you know, it has echoes of whether or not the Democrats in the house should have proceeded with impeachment or not. Right. You know, and Mm -hmm. it was sort of ultimately like, well, we, if we don't impeach for this, then we're setting a precedent that, you know, things like this would not rise to impeachment. And so. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: But it helped, it probably helped him with most, mostly with the supporters. So,
0: yeah, there are so many different planes on which you can measure these decisions. (laughs) Um. One sort of piddly thing that stuck out to me that um, it always sticks out to me when I watch the conventions, but it was even more obvious to me this year. And it it probably is not obvious to you, but um, watching the Democratic National Convention and having it hosted by Hollywood actresses <laughs> <laughs> and having the musical performances by like super famous musicians. <laughs> I even though on the one hand it makes for something that's like visually appealing, I think it's a really bad move politically because it um it emphasizes to conservatives that the Democrats have control on American cultural institutions. And it's like it's a signal, hey, we own Hollywood, we own the music industry, everything you get on your tv and movie screen is from us um welcome to our show i don't know like it, it i think <laughs> it's, it's a funny, one of those things that really turns off conservatives so as much as they're reaching out yeah
1: yeah i think it's such an interesting thing because you know and yeah like seeing things living on multiple planes like it's yeah. i think it's so resonant with this too because on the one hand you know like for me, like I since I'm not geared towards that particular strain of, of mm-hmm. popular culture, for me, it's sort of like neither here nor there. It doesn't right, impress right, right. me or yeah. not. But I totally can see that, yeah, from a conservative perspective, it's like, oh, it's that Hollywood veneer and da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And so I think they didn't, on one hand, they don't do themselves any favors, but then mm-hmm. on the other hand, um, they are trying to excite a younger voter Um, That's that's not pleased with with Biden. So this year in particular, I think there was, and I don't know how intentional, if it really was this, but I wonder if there was like a calculated, like, you know, this, the potential benefit will outweigh the potential.
0: Maybe we're like
1: balancing with all of these Republican appearances um, because it's such a weird thing to be in a time where, you know, the Republican candidate was himself a reality television star. And I think Mark Burnett I think is behind the slick. um, Mark Burnett is the um, sort of powerful reality show producer behind the apprentice and other shows. And then he's very friendly with Trump. And, um, and so I think there's this sort of weird kind of like, is there an appearance of, you know, the Democrats have the, the, the levers of the, the media and, or the, you know, the popular culture or, and what's really, you know going on with on the republican side with their particular candidate it's a very weird um well yeah it's kind of, time kind, of for it.
0: kind of interesting because here the democrats had hollywood and the republicans had the nfl and yeah that's um, true yeah and and also sort of the reality show vibe i mean the surprise pardon and surprise yeah. naturalization uh, ceremony you know, it was Fink almost like element of <laughs> a reality tv show like oh we're going to do something new and exciting here. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think there's a piece of it too, um, thinking back about previous, um, you know, previous candidates and conventions where you started to see a little bit more of the schism in terms of like, is the Hollywood talent that's appearing more considered more like higher octane for one party than Mm -hmm. another, you know, where, Mm -hmm. and I think that sort of started around um, Obama's conventions Mm-hmm. where you yeah. had just more like higher profile celebrities yes. and like Republicans very yeah. had celebrities, but they just weren't as well known or considered right. as exciting to the young people. Right. Um, right. So. The, the one real
0: flub that I thought the Democrats had, and the more I think about it, the more convinced I am of it is Julie, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Oh,
1: I just yeah. think she
0: was such a bad choice for that night. At first I thought as, as I saw it was her, I was like, mm, okay, well this could kind of go either way. And I kept trying to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt. But the more I think about it now, I just think it was a really bad choice. I mean, to have a comedic atri- actress on the night where – I think it was the same night that Biden spoke, right? Yeah, it was the final you night, know, yeah. The final yeah. night, I mean, i you probably should have gone with somebody with the most gravitas then, like somebody who could really make it seem mm-hmm. presidential. And here she was cracking all these jokes, which seemed – more informal, more, you know, less, it seemed less serious. And it was also any, like any, pretty much anything offensive that came from the the whole convention came from her. I just thought it was a really bad choice. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking.
1: Yeah. It was, it was weird. I, cause I felt like, you know, it's, I, and I think we talked about this online a little bit that night mm-hmm. where it didn't strike me to that extent. Although, yeah, I could totally see, Um, see that point of view, Um, but tonally um, to have, so I sort of not so much that they were celebrities, but I thought it was tonally weird to have sort of an MC every Mm -hmm. night um, Mm -hmm. because I think it was sort of, it added this extra something when already Mm -hmm. some of the things were not necessarily hanging together as well when you're going from thing to thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, by the time we got to that final night, I just wasn't into that device they were using. And so mm-hmm. I saw her as something she added positively was because of the the Veep show and she had worked with Biden. So they ended up right. having a personal connection. And so right. I think they were trying to include her within that. You know, we're trying to really humanize and, attack, you know, have you see the empathy of Joe Biden. And she told stories to that effect. But yeah, it's like, They could have had her as someone who's familiar and just been a neutral MC instead of having the jokes. But then I think there was just this pull to be like, well, let's try to be kind of hip and have her make these edgy jokes. So
0: it just didn't really all
1: work. I I Um, I
0: thought it really fell flat. Yeah. (laughs) And I I thought if they were going to have her, they should have had her a different night. I just thought that was the wrong choice. (laughs) They should have built up and had, um, I actually thought a couple of the
1: other speakers did much better and um yeah. they almost and- could have had his like granddaughters or something different throughout the nights i mean but i think they were not they were doing a family but they didn't want to do it quite in the trump family way where it's like yeah. uh, there's a little too much trump but um you know having real people as sort of more the um
0: doing introductions yeah. or something because yeah.
1: having having non-celebrity folks worked i think really well for them throughout the convention yeah i um you know, and
0: like the Republicans didn't have an MC and I think it went off very well. I do see how maybe the Democrats needed one with their format because they were jumping around so much. Maybe they did need something to kind of tie it all together. So I don't know that the MC was a bad choice for them, but, um, maybe fine tuning. Yeah. 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 And it it was interesting to see how the children were brought in on both conventions. I mean, Obviously it was, it was very focused on the Trump family. So, um, you know, I was, I was not at all surprised, but it is sort of funny if you take a few steps back. I mean, you wouldn't have seen that in previous years, having like four of his five kids speak, you know, major speech.
1: Yeah. And there, there just is that underlying and not to get too outside of the, the convention itself, but there is that, you know, undercurrent of. I think it was the second day in or entering the convention that uh, I think Eric Trump, um, I'm not exactly sure the details of the case right now, um, but was resisting testifying um, in the case that New York is bringing against the, um, the Trump corporation, et cetera. So it's kind of like, there was just, there's always just this sort of like undercurrent of the news there. That's a right. little bit different. Like, I think like in the, with the, Democrats, they it's they were being very careful about how they would handle Bo Biden, not Bo Biden. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of Bo Biden, um, but Hunter Biden, um, because not wanting to invite the, um, you know, the the various speculating and like opening up that kind of line of critique from the other side. And so. um, But, yeah, it's I think there's like an interesting tension with families because to lend a candidate, you know, approachability and humanity and, you know, seeing how they interact with family, you know, is supposed to be indicative of how they, they care about you, the country and how they make decisions. Um, The framing of the family stories, you know, I think was like a, um, an interesting piece to both that um, in both cases, because of the various dynamics right now would invite, you know, It's like we have to do it. And how do we do it in a way that is not going to like uh, bring on the worst criticism? Although I don't know if they really like, I don't think from a a Trump family side, there's that much concern about it because they're sort of like, you know, like shameless is the wrong word because it sounds, I don't mean it to sound value um, driven, but there's just sort of a, here we are, you know, it's the yeah. Trumps and yeah. I'm going to hire my son-in-law and my daughter and yeah. Yeah. I, I and not feel really, like, yeah. Yeah.
0: I feel like they, the two campaigns were trying to do something different with the yeah. family members. I think on the Trump side, it's all about the Trump brand, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, um, here's, here's the brand. We're very visible. Um, let's, let's emphasize the brand. Yeah. I felt like on the Biden side, they were trying to endear you um, mm-hmm. to Biden. And personally, I thought it went a little overboard on the Bo Biden thing. I thought they mm-hmm. laid it.
1: Out I would agree th- with that. I was yeah. I mean, I was wondering if anyone else noticed that. Yeah, it came I mean, up every night.
0: Yeah, and funny. I felt like, um, I mean, it was good to talk about it, but I just thought it was too much. And I I don't, I don't know, it kind of made me almost uncomfortable to a point. It's like, okay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I I think by the last night, especially, because that was a big chunk of the last night. Right. Um, And it didn't, I don't think it really was necessary because they'd already, you know, made the point they wanted to make
0: there. Yeah. By the time they did that introduction with all three siblings, with Hunter and I think it's her name, Ashley. um, Mm -hmm. so. yeah. And then footage of Bo introducing Biden, I was really uncomfortable at that point. I just felt like, okay, you're like using his memory. Um, I think if they had just done that inner introduction, it would have been fine. But there had already been so much on Bo that it just, to me, it seemed like too much. Mm -hmm. I did, however, think that the um, other two siblings did a nice job in that introduction. And I thought that was the perfectly appropriate way to have Hunter Biden appear because it would have been dangerous to give him a full speech um because i mean i don't know much about him i don't even know how he would do or whether he would even be interested mm-hmm. but um, obviously because of his political vulnerabilities to give him a full speech mm-hmm. would have just been inviting criticism yeah. so i, I thought having that. him just do the introduction was perfect and that was mm-hmm. fine i just And thought- if
1: they hadn't had him at all that would have also you
0: know, exactly yes.
1: they're hiding hunter yes absolutely public. yeah
0: yeah, yeah, they had to have him, but they had to only have him in a low profile introduction, and mm-hmm. I think that was perfect. But I just thought, I don't know, it was a little made me a little uncomfortable. How much?
1: Yeah, was- I think you know, and I, especially if you think about Bo, the use of of Bo's story in the context mm-hmm. of we're trying to tell, you know, a broader story about the various losses that Biden's experienced right. and as a as a, a selling point. You know that he has experienced tragedy. He um, can be a comforter in chief, quote unquote, um, in this time Mm -hmm. of the pandemic and rebuilding, et cetera. But I and I think that that's, you know, there's like a there's that piece of that where it's like that's an important story to tell, particularly for people who think they know who he is, but, you know, don't are, are very, very far away from, you know, his time as a young senator and wouldn't really know. Um, the circumstances behind his first wife and and child Mm -hmm. passing away. But so I I felt like it was important, but then with the addition of too many set pieces related to Bo, it was, it it was felt like overkill that could be sort of inviting this, you know, um, not only using Bo's memory, but also using, you know, the other tragedies yeah. in his life, yeah. and it could be seen yeah. you know, as a cheap thing. And I, I really yeah. don't think that was intended. Um, but I think they should have used more discipline in the um, yeah. Yeah. the Absolutely. editing process. No, I mean,
0: I think, you know, they're trying to portray, I think, I think, in this moment, where the country is going through so much difficulty, they are trying to emphasize that Joe Biden is someone who understands, struggle and loss and yeah. pain and he's with you and he gets you and he knows what you're going through. I think that's a perfectly reasonable message. It makes sense. I just thought they laid it on a little thick. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think because I mean if you think about some of the um the more issues driven pieces that they also were so yeah I think in both cases there was an undercurrent. So I recall as the the DNC was ending the spokespeople for the Republican convention were saying we're going to have a very upbeat and very optimistic convention comparatively. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't so, I mean, there were moments of that, but there was a lot of, I think, more of a be worried or fearful about Mm -hmm. what happens if we don't reelect Trump Mm -hmm. that made it a darker thing overall. But I think both of them had this kind of, we want to inspire you to think about the future, um, but we also want to ground things in this seriousness that's going to be motivating, you know, that we have to have our candidate win to prevent X or Y or to right. turn the ship in certain ways. And so I felt like the pieces with, say, um, the students from Parkland High School um, and Gabby Giffords, um, and there was a little girl whose, um, whose mom had been deported. Um, mm. and Dad had been a Trump supporter. So there was a lot of you know, angst there. I think mm-hmm. those sort of um, more darker tinged type of pieces to kind of grab you emotionally, they were doing a lot of work too. Also the woman whose father died of COVID. Oh, that yes. Too. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think those pieces were, they were done carefully enough that they didn't feel exploitive. And so mm-hmm. I think with all of those pieces already there, it's like the Biden story, They could have been sparser with that because they Mm -hmm. didn't really have to, you know, tell it multiple times. So,
0: yeah. One thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is that I think a lot of people right now are justifiably very nervous about what's Mm -hmm. happening in the country and concerned about the direction it's going in. And I think a lot of people have um, concerns that there are like some real existential threats to the country. But we have different things that we think are those existential threats, mm-hmm. and I think you saw that reflected in the convention. So I think in the in the center, I think the ex- existential threat, and I would consider myself here part of this center, um, <laughs> is really the the sort of structure of democracy. Like, mm-hmm. is government functioning well? Are our politics being done with some sort of minimum amount of honor and decency? Um, are you know the Hatch Act, things like that? You know, yeah. are, are sort of the are mm-hmm. the wheels of government and politics moving and functioning well? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people on the left. Don't fully understand what, um, how deeply people on the right also see an existential threat. And I think that everything that's happening right now when it comes to violence in the wake of protests, um, is really feeding those fears. I mean, I think on the right for a long time, there has been this existential fear of a collapse of society. <laughs> and, <laughs> Um I just don't think that Democrats are taking that fear seriously enough, mm-hmm. and uh, but you could definitely see it in the Republican speeches yeah. and um, i I think I think there's a lot more fear out there than people realize, and then I'm sure on the left, there's maybe some existential concerns on the on the other side of it, so I, I actually think there's almost three different. Avenues of concern right now.
1: Yeah, and they can, and, and in some cases, they're they're interacting or overlapping, depending mm-hmm. on you know the voter mm-hmm. and their their situation. Because I think, yeah, for sure, um, I would say on on um, policies and issues. Um, you know, I affiliate quite strongly with a left perspective in a lot of ways, you know, with mm-hmm. pragmatic, pragmatic <laughs> approach to, to meeting ends. But, uh, you know, and p- perhaps this is I don't know if that's unique to me. I, I don't think it is because I feel like a lot of the people I engage with online or know in real life, you know, have that same kind of central or core concern about, you know, what's happening to our democracy and what's happening to, to established norms. I mean, I think that the things that have transpired in the last four years have been kind of a, a wake-up call to a lot of folks who read. Um, They're kind of passively engaged or thought they were engaged, but not mm-hmm. really paying mm-hmm. close attention or doing anything on the regular about um, elections. Um, and there's been like a turning of attention to. Yes, if this if X happens with this election, what does that mean for these things we took for granted in terms of a well functioning government? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of I think interaction depending on you know one's positioning and what kind of their media diet is too. You know makes a huge difference, and so it's kind of hard to evaluate. I think um, for me the what the the Democratic Party as a, an entity. Um, or how how strongly concerned they are about what I think, you know, is is absolutely true that what you're saying about um, folks who are um, on the more conservative side of things, having an existential fear about where society is headed Um, because, you know, we have that, there's that, you know, common phrase about the democratic party being a big tent. And Mm -hmm. within that, there's so much, I think, um, sort of wrangling and compromising between fairly disparate interest groups already within the democratic party or our sort of affiliates, if you will, like, you know, the democratic socialists are kind of Democrats and kind of not, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and keeping all that together, that when it comes time to be like, how does this thing, the democratic party apprehend and address what folks more on the Republican side of the house are apprehending and thinking about and worried about, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to have a unified kind of like, you know, you have say more of the folks who are on the further left who are like, good, we want them to, (laughs) we want them to be worried about this on some level because Mm -hmm. things that we are um, proponents of are, you know, radical changes potentially to what we think Mm -hmm. of in terms of how Mm -hmm. society functions. But even on the sort of left of center of the democratic party, folks are very much, um, I think very reliant on the norms and traditions and they want a normalcy and they, you know, they want, you know, this, um, what we have to hold, um, Mm -hmm. and not just be sort of blown up, you know, with nothing to replace it. And, um, and I think the fear that I think a lot of more democratic voters have on the existential side have to do with, say, if you're looking at say the um the recent uprisings related to um, to um to black men who have been killed by police um, that the egregiousness, you know, this has come up in conversations that you've had on previous Mm -hmm. episodes, Mm -hmm. Um, the egregiousness of what's been going on sort of under the surface of a lot of mainstream Americans awareness, um, you know, it's going to take something that's um, a dramatic change. And yeah, can we wait? You know, there's that whole thing of like, it takes time to make change, but there's things that at certain points in time, you have a tipping point where there's an urgency so i think that's where it's like how to how to acknowledge that folks on both sides of aisles share a lot of the same fears but they're you know conceptualized you know in different ways and that even though there's probably opposing what we think of as opposing stances to solutions that you know there's probably a lot more that's in common there but the language sets i think are so different um, which I think you
0: were alluding to. Yeah. And I feel almost like we're speaking different languages right now. You know, I mean,
1: yeah.
0: if, if I'm talking to someone from my perspective and I'm saying like, don't you realize how far this is deviating from the norm? Like we mm-hmm. are potentially getting ourselves into a situation where we can no longer rely upon these structures that we've relied upon for 200 years. You know, like, mm-hmm. don't you realize how big of a deal this is? Well, there's someone on the right who's saying, don't you realize how big of a deal this other thing is? Like, uh, you know, I'm going to put your concern aside because I think my concern is what is threatening to our life Mm -hmm. as a nation. And I'm sure somebody on the far left would say the same thing about something different. So I just feel like we have, we're speaking different languages and it makes it hard for us to work anything out right now because we are so concerned about our primary concern that we don't have any room for the others. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, particularly with the the confluence right now of just like thinking about what was happening just this week alone and like the news stories of last week Mm -hmm. during the prior convention have already sort of slipped away, but this week Mm -hmm. we had this category five hurricane barreling down on the, the Gulf and we Mm had, um, well, last week, I think it was the, in, yes, in, yeah. absolutely. I think last week it was the Senate report, the final installment of the report about um, interference in the 2016 election, you know, dropped. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and there was also these, this
0: ratio out in Iowa. that before. Yeah. There's just so much all in one moment. Yeah. And the pandemic, which we didn't even mention. Right.
1: Which is just underlying. Know. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's, you know, it's so much. And um, I do think, in terms of thinking about how how a party responds, so say, like, say if the Republican Party was to address the threats perceived by the Democrat people who affiliate more as Democrats and vice versa, you know, the ideologies around how government is supposed to work, you know, for it's and it's very pat, but something that comes up a lot in Democratic circles is this kind of like very and I know it's a gross generalization, but it's like, well, you know, Republicans don't even want a government or they, you know, they don't. Um, and again, very big generalization, but it's mm-hmm. like a shorthand way of saying that, you know, the solutions that we offer as Democrats to problems are, are not going to be palatable because they rely on a heavy investment of, you know, in, in the government. And so then it's, it's really difficult to navigate. Yeah, it's interesting to actually hear that that's recognized because on the
0: the Republican side of it, I just hear, Democrats want to rule your life. They want to tell you what to do. They want every solution to come from the government. Mm-hmm. But I I guess I was not recognizing so much how much that is that feeling is recognized by the Democrats. That's interesting to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, it, it definitely comes up more in, in terms of people who have, like, worked, I think, in, uh, you know, particularly have worked, say, in presidential administrations or legislatively, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of, like, the the pathways that we see towards making a change yeah. go through government, whereas from our folks, you know, our contem- you know contemporaries on the other side of the aisle, they see solutions that are about divesting. Mm-hmm. And I think there is that piece of it where sometimes it's just not reconcilable because yeah. there's yeah. just a whole different idea about how change happens. But that's the piece where compromise comes in. If we have a functioning center that holds things together, that you know, if you have the norms, you have the structures, you you have a shared acknowledgement that we want a functional government, then from there you can you can negotiate and decide how far to go one way or another. But if you don't have the functioning government, then yeah, right. I mean, yeah. From my perspective, yeah. then I don't know what you do, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, that's, that's uh,
0: my, see, I, I just think that, um, I just think that we Americans have had the luxury to take our system for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only one we know we've had it for more than 200 years. We just almost don't even think there's another possibility. And, um, I think that you can begin to, um, if if you don't recognize the value of your structure, you can lose it, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really unhealthy for us to take it for granted to the degree that we have and to think Mm -hmm. that it's indestructible because it is a human institution and it is therefore not indestructible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I I do think, um, you know, we, and I know like Trump is sort of a singular figure and it's so hard right now to kind of Peel away, you know what is what is Trump or what in terms or what is happening around Trump because it's almost like he's kind of like this little tornado that has all these other folks mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, engaged and doing various things in different parts of government. But you know that sort of Trumpification of things—it's just hard. You know, we have to be careful to teasing out what was sort of already happening. You know, preceding um, him winning the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. um to be mindful of those things and to evaluate what was serving us there and what was not serving us and then what has happened in the net last almost 4 years that have accelerated or you know further layered on um i think things that are not you know really conducive to having a functional um mm-hmm. central government mm-hmm. and um, yeah I don't know that, obviously, these last two weeks have particularly been, you know, I think they're insightful in terms of what types of, like you said, voters are, um, each party is aiming to reach. Um, But I don't think they were really, and I think it speaks to both the candidates. I think the piece of it with Biden and the story that was being told you know, they have, you know, with the convention, the infomercial aspect, the policy piece is not a big part, even though the Democrats have an articulated platform. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I I do think for someone who, and again, like, like, I know, like, we're not typical voters, uh, because we're more invested in that piece of it. I mm-hmm. I was disappointed to not have kind of like a, let me feel, let me get a better sense of like, what next year will be like. Um mm-hmm. Either of these candidates. Yeah. I thought it was interesting.
0: I'm pretty sure that in Trump's speech, and I'm looking through my notes, I'm pretty sure that he said something like, the Democrats didn't tell you what their agenda is Mm -hmm. because they don't want you to know how radical it is or something like that. (laughs) And I just, I thought that was an interesting comment to make, considering the Republicans hadn't put out any platform at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is kind of funny because I do, you know, I, something that's, I was critical of Biden of in the, the primary was that he was just, it's, he seemed very lackadaisical about putting out um, uh, positions on his website as opposed to the other primary candidates.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: And it did seem like he was kind of hanging back because he didn't want to out of the gate offend anyone when Mm -hmm. he could just wait and build some steam and then adopt Mm -hmm. policy positions later on. But I think that's that's kind of how the biscuits get made a bit, too. Yeah. So and that's, you know, not something I'm not worried about. But we find ourselves now where I think Joe Biden's. Yeah. What he has put out as the agenda is much more articulated than what Trump has but again a lot of a, a typical Trump voter is more interested in Trump than you know or the stereotypical Trump voter I should say not typical mm-hmm. but is a little more interested in this idea of if Trump is this person who's going to be different and somehow get things done through his difference from the norm and so they're not as maybe, right he's
0: yeah he's he's selling that. himself more than he's selling a particular set of yeah policy goals yes
1: yeah Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, I do think it is funny. It is an uncomfortable sort, not uncomfortable, but it's a, it's kind of a funny and incongruent thing to have to try to campaign with Joe Biden as the, you know, he's the sleepy guy and he doesn't have the energy and he's, but he's, and he's too conservative for some of you, but he's also this, yeah, this sleeper Trojan horse of um, socialist <laughs> marxism right. etc <laughs> yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah so. it's 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 i think it's definitely hard harder for um the republicans to attack biden than it would have been to attack uh warren or sanders i think yeah, absolutely i think given the current situation the democrats did as bad about as well as they could do with their candidate and um I don't just say that because I prefer a more centrist candidate. <laughs> um I, I actually just think for today's mm-hmm. politics, I mean, I just think they're so lucky that they ended up with him because um, I think if they had gone with Sanders or Warren, it would be a much tighter election and there could be, um, there would be definitely more of a chance that yeah. you know, Democrats would lose it. So, I mean, as it is, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a totally foregone. I think that anybody who just assumes that Trump doesn't have a chance is not paying enough attention. Oh, yeah.
1: I I, I would say that um, sometimes I do see characterizations that, oh, the Democrats were taking it for granted that with the polls, et cetera. But knowing Democrats the way I do, we're kind of a self, this is sort of a a sort of an inside party, like generalization, we're kind of self-loathing. (laughs) Um, And we are the first to kind of like, yeah, just to sabotage ourselves. And so I do think particularly after 2016, there's almost um, and people were talking about this a lot in the primary where there was a lot of. you know, disappointment among some circles about biding and emerging because it was felt that like, oh, we're so we're being so cautious. We're so traumatized from how the race went in 2016 that we're, you know, we're limiting ourselves. We're, you know, it's not the right thing to be taking the safe candidate. Um, But then over time, as you said, I think given all of the factors, especially now with the way the pandemic has proceeded and everything else, um, that Biden does have um, a lot of advantages, um, especially to pull in independent voters. Um, And I think though that now is the time where I think a lot of um, people who are actually actively working in the, the campaign for Biden are like, okay, we need to be We need to be nervous and we need to work as hard as we can to get every vote. But we also need to protect against our tendency to be paralyzed with fear, (laughs) Um, you know, that we don't um, we're too cautious when we shouldn't be, um, you know, particularly with trying to engage younger voters, that that could be something that could come around and bite um, bite the party. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I I get the real sense that at least of the Democrats who pay attention to politics, they feel very burned by what happened in 2016 (laughs) and they are, you know, they are wary of the fire. (laughs) (laughs) I think,
1: I think think,
0: think most, most of the Democrats who pay attention are not just taking for granted that it's going to be a cakewalk. So I think that's probably good. It's healthier for, for both sides to feel like they've got to work for a victory. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Jill, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. Yeah. It's kind of neat because, you know, you type up these little comments online and you get (laughs) enjoyment on the back and forth there, but you don't actually sit down and talk to somebody for a long time very often. I I really have enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I would love to do this again. Maybe later we uh, we can... put on our amateur pundit hats again another time
1: yeah absolutely <laughs> definitely in my wheelhouse so i really appreciate it
0: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the rest of the election i, I keep uh, telling my
1: kids you know we are living in
0: interesting times and in it's like
1: it's it feels like there's a long way to go but yet it's going to go really quickly so yeah, from yeah i
0: on, so i think it's going to go really quickly absolutely i mean we're <laughs> it's almost in, into september so we are getting close yeah so Well, thank you so much. I really
1: appreciate it. you're welcome.
0: I hope you enjoyed the second part of that two-part conversation with Dr. Jill Scheibler. Before I leave this topic, I'd like to note that, while Jill and I both tried to be as fair and even-handed as possible in our analysis of the Democratic and Republican national conventions, we of course have our own, more personal opinions of what was said and done in them. As a committed Democrat, Jill's opinions are probably pretty easy to guess. But as for myself, someone who's acknowledged that I'm a registered Republican, and who's talked about both my lifelong attachment to the party and my current discomfort with it, I think it's only fair that I give you a sense of what I really think. The truth is, I went into the conventions operating under the firm conviction that President Trump is fundamentally unfit for office and that he's done more damage to our democracy than any president in my lifetime, or indeed, for quite some time before that. I expected to be underwhelmed, or embarrassed, or agitated by the Republican National Convention. I was wrong, but not in the way Republicans might hope. I was not underwhelmed by the Republican National Convention. It was better produced than I expected. It was slick. It came off well, and I think it probably achieved what it set out to do. I covered all of that in my conversation with Jill. I wasn't embarrassed, and I wasn't agitated either. I suppose I've grown too used to Donald Trump's Republican Party to suffer its indecencies with any more pain than I already have. Rather, I took in the Republican National Convention with resignation. It turned out to be a better packaged, shinier, and smoother version of what I expected. Trump and his party made their case for a future I don't want with messaging I don't respect. I typed pages upon pages of notes while watching, pages of me recognizing that this president and this party will bend the truth to its breaking point, that their recklessness with our civic culture knows no bounds, that they know their only route to power is fear. I could write a list of dozens of misleading statements from the convention. Misleading statements that I myself caught, me, a suburban housewife, a stay at home mom to five little kids, just because I pay attention to the news. This is not good leadership. It is not healthy governance. It is not honorable. Part of me doesn't want to say all of this to you because I want to be as even and fair and trustworthy as I can possibly be on this podcast. But the deepest, Most honest and sober part of myself knows that I can't let this moment pass without telling the truth as I understand it. In their convention, the Democratic Party reached out to me, a Republican. They did not convert me to the fullness of their platform, though bonus points to them for actually having one. And as a staunchly pro life woman, I know that their assurances that there's a place for everyone in the Democratic Party were not meant for me. I have no plans to change my registration, to make donations to Democratic candidates, to vote a straight Democratic ticket. But for the first time in my life, I am honestly, wholly open to voting for a Democrat for president. I'm open to it because, miracle of miracles, the Democratic electorate of 2020 nominated a centrist who knows how to reach out. But mostly. I'm open to it because President Trump and the Republican Party have made their case in their new, distinctive way. And I cannot abide it. All right. Is anybody still coming back for next week's episode? You should, because next week we'll be broaching a topic that any good citizen, and especially any good Christian, should be willing to wrestle with. Next week, I'll be sharing a conversation with Dr. Linda Wanse on the importance of being open to the idea that we could be wrong. Linda is a cradle Catholic who fell away from the Church but was called back to the fullness of her faith after what she considers a miraculous encounter with the Eucharist. When she is not caring for patients in her dental office, Linda can be found chasing her two toddler daughters or chasing sleep. She is passionate about spreading the gospel and proclaiming the sanctity and dignity of all life, from womb to tomb. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. To learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.